0: The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior is in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
1: Well, Like I mentioned, for Advent, we've been going through the, the antiphons, these titles from Christ, taking from the prophetic writings. And today we come to Christ as our dayspring. Christ as the dawn Christ as the sunrise and we get this these truths from Isaiah 9 which we heard read um, at the beginning of the service today so before we turn to that text let us turn to the Lord in prayer God our Father thank you for Christ who is our light who is our sunrise who is our day spring Lord as we celebrate Christmas may you impress by your Holy Spirit this truth heavy And gratefully upon our hearts and Lord we do pray that all that follows would be faithful uh, to Isaiah 9 and and this beautiful text that you've given your people the church Christ's name we pray amen well a number of years ago I I heard a man tell a story and he described how late one night in in high school he and a group of friends decided to drive for a few hours to the coast they wanted to take in a, a beautiful beach sunrise the following morning, and the coast that they set out for was the coast of of California. And the the setting of the story was made clear early on, but at the time of of the telling, myself situated in in the Midwest and, and far away from such postcard perfections, that detail didn't strike me as particularly important. Whether they were in California or Connecticut, it made no difference to me. However, when they finally reached the beach, instead of seeing the sun start its course over the water, instead they saw their shadows stretching towards the sea. They looked over the beach and onto the water and they saw only darkness ahead. And so their plan had failed to factor in the most important kind of information, namely what a sunrise actually is. A sunrise is certainly a beautiful thing but no amount of wishful thinking is going to make the sun rise in the west. They were perfectly situated to wade and take in a surely stunning sunset but concerning a sea-framed sunrise continentally speaking they could not have been further off course. And God tells us in Isaiah 9 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And this is not the last time that we find this kind of language in Scripture. Years later, on the very brink of this promised child, the child promised in Isaiah 9, God speaks through another one of his servants, the prophet Zechariah. And here he describes the birth of this child as a sunrise because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this is fitting imagery. To appreciate the sunrise, we must not only recognize that we are in darkness, that we are in the midst of night, but we also have to be looking in the right direction. To see the sunrise, we have to look east. To appreciate the sunrise, we must know that we are in darkness, but we also must know where we are to look. A promise a promise, is, is similar to a sunrise in this respect. And God has made a promise to his people. God has committed himself to a very specific course of action and it will come, but just as the sun rises only in the east, So, too, God's promise will take a very specific form. And if we're looking in the wrong place, we're going to miss it. The light will come from what God will do, not from what we think that God should do. And so then, what is this promise that we are given by God? Well, Isaiah tells us in the most extravagant terms For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child, a child will be born, but not just any child. God tells us that this child will be the greatest of kings. God tells us that all rule will rest upon his shoulders, and this alone would make the prophecy astounding. But God goes further. God tells us that this child to be born will himself be God. God tells us explicitly that this child will be called Mighty God, a direct identification of this child as divine. God tells us that this child is everlasting. He tells us this child is eternal outside of time, something only true of God. The title Wonderful Counselor also points us to the divinity of this child. One commentator explains that while this word here translated as wonderful, it's sometimes used to describe extraordinary human activity, most often it describes the miraculous and astounding work of God. And this child, the counsel of this child will be so wise that it will not be explainable by any mere human means. This child will speak and teach and command and admonish with such uncanny prudence and wisdom and insight that the only explanation will be that he instructs with, and as the very wisdom of God. But again, remember, this is a promise. A promise does not tell you to do something. That would be a command. A promise tells you what a speaker will do, what the speaker is committed to doing in the future. If I make a promise to you, I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what I am going to do. And so the prophecy of this child finishes with the assurance, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the work of the Lord. It's the work of his zeal. And zeal here speaks of God's deep love and compassion for humanity. It is a promise of what he will do. And he will fulfill this promise because of his deep, deep love for us. But again, a promise, like a sunrise, is something specific. The sunrise is here, but not there. God has promised to do this, but not that. But if this is what God has promised to do, then surely this must be what we need. If this is what God has done for us in his good and gracious love, then we have to let this diagnose the darkness. In which we walk strictly speaking darkness is not a thing it's the absence of light the sun rises and gives light but there's no counterpart to the sun that rises and gives darkness the dark night sky is the result of the absence of the sun's light and the darkness here is the absence of the light that god has promised darkness is not a thing it's an absence Of light we are in the dark because we lack what God has promised darkness is the absence of this promised child this child he's the sunrise the light the fulfillment of the promise the one hope that can deliver us from darkness but how could this child who is God become human, yet still God, this child who has both a divine and human nature, how could this child deliver us from darkness? Well, again, remember what God does here. God promises. But this is not what we have come to expect from religions When we say something like all religions lead to God, we assume that any good religious teaching primarily gives us advice or instruction or commands in the way that we should live. Religious teachers come and they tell us how we are to behave ourselves so that we can make our journey to God. Do this, don't do that. Do that, don't do this. And if the primary message is what you must do to be a good person so that you can come to God, then yes, it would make sense for any number of religious teachings to get you there. If it's primarily a matter of us coming to God by what we do and how we live, then any sufficiently good life, however we might define that, should lead us to God. And if that's the case, then what God primarily gives us is commands. However, we don't find a command here. We find a promise. Again, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is what makes Christianity wholly different. Here in one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, God tells us not what we should do, but what he will do. If all God gave us was a command, then yes, many religious paths will do. But if God gives us a promise, we must look to the specific form of its fulfillment. If we must make our own light, we can look wherever we want. But if we need the light of the sunrise, then we must look east. And again, the fulfillment of this promise is this child, God, become human. But why would that be? Why would this be the light that shines in the darkness? If this is all about what God promises to do, what alone could God do by becoming human? Well, this promise means that we are so lost in darkness that God himself must come down and be really and truly human in our place. God himself in this child must come and live the human life that God calls us to lead. God himself promises to be perfectly human in our place. But of course, this not only speaks to our lostness, it also speaks of God's great zeal, God's great love for us. In this promise, we see that we are both deeply lost and also dearly loved. The promise of this child is the promise that God will do what he asks of us because of his zeal for us. Or as St. Augustine writes in his Confessions, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. But is this really necessary? Does God really have to come and be human in our place? Well, consider the Bible's ethic of justice and goodness and community. Consider what God demands from every human being. He commands us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to love God wholly and fully and completely all the time. We're called to love every other human being in the very same way that we love ourselves. This means meeting the needs of others with the very same concern and intensity that we meet our own, doing that all the time this means being just as sad and sorrowful for the pains and struggles and difficulties of others as we are for our own and this means and, and this might be the hardest of all that we are to celebrate and rejoice in their good gifts just as much as our own for instance this might take the form of rejoicing with your friend when they've received some job or position or honor that you were both competing for and all the same, rejoicing in just the same way as if you had received the job instead. This is the ethic that God calls us to. And you might ask, isn't this a rather ridiculous and unreasonable and ludicrous and outrageous view of things? Isn't there a place for being just good enough? I certainly understand this way of thinking But to think this, please admit that you are rejecting an absolute and uncompromising notion of goodness and justice and community. If we can speak of being good enough, then we don't have to be perfectly just. And yes, if we don't have to be perfectly just and good and ethical, then yes, all we need are commands. But if this picture of justice and righteousness and goodness is what we're called to, then our only hope is a promise, the very promise of God, for God to be properly human in our place, to live the perfectly loving and good life on our behalf. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And so, we should not be surprised that justice and righteousness characterize the rule and reign of this child of God to become a human. Isaiah tells us that he will establish and uphold his rule with justice and righteousness. But there's more. If God is truly just, then there must be a judgment upon injustice. If God were to simply sweep under the rug all of the ways that we've fallen short of this perfect ethic then God himself would be unjust. And so this promise points to more. And it does so in an ironic way. The child is said to rule upon the throne of David. And technically speaking, only one son ruled upon the throne of David, and that was his son Solomon. He was the one heir of david who ruled over all of the tribes of israel before they splintered into two kingdoms and solomon too was known for his wisdom and counsel however solomon's kingdom was not built upon the peace that the kingdom of this promised child will be built upon biblical scholar alec Matir he writes solomon established his throne in accordance with the appalling final directions of David, in savage bloodshed. On his deathbed, David gave Solomon a list of people in the kingdom that he believed Solomon would do best to kill. The perceived wrongs were then avenged, and the kingdom of Solomon was built upon him handing out the judgment of death as he saw fit. But what of this promised child, this prince of peace? Surprisingly, his kingdom too is built upon bloodshed. And while Solomon killed those who were not wholly innocent, the kingdom of this child will be established upon the blood of the perfectly innocent. But then you ask, how will a kingdom built upon the blood of the innocent be a kingdom of justice? Well, because this child who is God become human in our place, this child will not only live the life that we should have lived, he'll also take the punishment that we deserve for falling short of this perfect justice. He will die upon the cross. Unlike Solomon, he will build his kingdom upon his own blood. O oh Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And of course, being the one who reigns forever, he will be raised, and one day he will return to establish this kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness. This child, of course, is is Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate on Christmas. And he is the one who blows all of our ideas about religion out of the water. All along, we thought it was all about what we should do But in this promise, we find that it's all about what God has already done for us in this child, Jesus Christ. Should the Christian then be self-righteous? No, anything but. The Christian is the one who realizes that their whole relationship with God rests completely, completely upon Christ on what God become human has done and suffered in our place. Our whole relationship with God is built upon the fact that God offers forgiveness in Christ by his living and dying for us. And so no, Christianity is not the basis for self-righteousness or hypocrisy or any sort of conceit about our own moral efforts. In fact, as, as literature professor Alan Jacob warns us, He says when we lose the christian god we lose the god who forgives and when we lose the god who forgives we lose a society that forgives he writes when a society rejects the christian account of who we are it doesn't become less moralistic but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. And to be sure, we see this in our present moment. Yet the Christian God calls all of us to account and offers Christ, this child, in our place. Deep down, we know that we don't even keep the rules that we put upon other people that we say that they should follow let alone this perfect ethic of God. And so we must have no illusions about ourselves and our need for forgiveness, forgiveness from both God and neighbor. No Christian should ever, can ever look at another human being and say, I am better than you. We all stand in desperate need of God's forgiveness in Christ. But without a forgiving God, we find the unforgiving, vindictive moralism that justifies myself as the good ones, one of the good ones, against you as one of the bad ones. For instance, a recent article in The Guardian gives us the following shocking statistic. Animosity towards those in the opposing party is higher than at any time in living memory. 42% of registered voters believe Americans in the other party are, quote, downright evil but for the christian this will not do all of us every single one of us desperately needs this this promise fulfilled in christ and so christ this child does not come to separate the world into the good and the bad into the downright ethical and the downright evil we all fall short rather as i've heard it said before Christ comes to separate the world into the proud and the humble, into those who believe they have no need of Christ, and those who humbly know that they fall short and so desperately cling to Christ, to God's fulfilled promise. And yes, like any promise, the promise of Christ is very specific, but it's a promise offered to anyone and everyone. To see the sunrise, we must look to the east, but anyone can look to the east. And like any promise, what this promise demands is trust and faith. If I make a promise to you, I'm not telling you what to do, but I am asking you to believe that I will do what I said that I would do for you. In the same way, God invites us to believe his He invites us to trust that in Christ he has shined a light into our darkness. He invites us to believe that the zeal zeal of the Lord has done this. And if we rest our trust upon this promise, if we rest the very weight of our existence on this promise, then Christ gives us the righteousness of his perfect life that he alone has merited and he takes our guilt for all the ways that we have fallen short of God's perfect ethic of love, a guilt that he bore for us on the cross. You're certainly free to reject this promise, and in that case, you are only left with God's commands. Commands that are so pure and are so prescriptive of the perfect human life of flourishing that they cannot help but hold us guilty. And without christ this is a guilt that we will bear forever what else can the most perfect justice demand christmas is about the gift of salvation it's about receiving what god alone can give and ironically what we find is that god alone can be properly human in our place this is wonderful counsel This is wisdom that could only come from God himself. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. This is the promise fulfilled in the child Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of Christ, the promise of Christ that you, Lord, have fulfilled your promise that you have not only commanded, but you have given what you command. Help us to rest in that truth. Help it to give us joy
0: this Christmas season. In Christ's name we pray, amen.